This week takes us to Austin, Texas, where a young mother is beaten to death after a night out on the town. And despite a conviction and sentencing, many believe her murderer remains free. This is episode 64 of Texas 1031. everyone. This is Hannah. This is Texas 1031, and this is a Texas true crime podcast. This week, I'm going to be telling you all about the murder of Natalie Antonetti in Austin, Texas in 1985. Natalie's case is a unique one. It's somewhat of a whodunit. And despite law enforcement in Texas courts believing the case has been solved, I think everyone else believes that her murderer is still out there. Lots of questions and theories on this one, which I feel like I haven't had in the last few episodes, so picture it. Austin, Texas, 1985. In the early morning hours of Sunday, October 13th, my favorite day of the year, Susan Otten would find her friend and roommate, 38-year-old Natalie Antonetti, bleeding from several open wounds to her head and speaking incoherently. 18 days later, Natalie would die from her injuries and leave nothing but questions and speculation in her wake. In the 1960s and only in her early teens, Natalie fled a Castro-led Cuba with her three younger sisters. The women lived independently in various American cities, but stayed close as the years went by and as they each built families in the United States. Only 15 months before her death, Natalie established a home for herself and her son, Johnny, who was only 16 at the time, in Austin. They lived with Susan in an apartment on Barton Hills Drive. I couldn't find really much information regarding Johnny's father or the relationship between he and Natalie or really how she ended up in Austin in the first place, but nonetheless, she is making it work with Johnny and Susan. Around the time of her death, Natalie, who was a former teacher, was working at Native Sun Plant Nursery and had a landscaping business called The Wild Side. Just like the majority of Austin residents at the time, many of her co-workers were musicians, so it wasn't uncommon for her to have friends over for dinner and music, or for them to visit various music clubs and venues in town. On October 12th, Johnny had spent the evening at Dennis Davis's music studio. He was a former boyfriend of Natalie's. Johnny drank too much and decided to just go home and go to sleep. Hours before her attack, Natalie visited a couple of bars and venues in town, one named either Steamboat Springs or just Steamboat. I saw it listed as both in different articles. I don't know if Steamboat is like the cool, like local way of referring to it, whatever. And then another place called Toulouse. Both were neighboring clubs on Austin's famed 6th Street. Around 2 a.m. when the bars were closing for the night, Natalie returned to her home around 2.30 a.m. She changed her clothes and went for a walk around the complex pool. After returning 10 minutes later, she briefly spoke with Susan and fell asleep on the couch. When Susan got up at 4.40 a.m. for a glass of water, Natalie was still on the couch asleep. Only 30, 35 minutes later, around 5.15, Susan woke up to thumping and moaning noises and a door shutting. Susan came into the living room to see what was going on, and she found Natalie, unrecognizable, sitting on the couch, holding her head. Susan woke Johnny, who was in another bedroom. Johnny began to talk to his mom while Susan called 911. Johnny watched helplessly as his mother stumbled across the apartment, unable to form the words to answer his questions about what happened. 
He steadied her as she walked to the bathroom and tried to wipe the blood streaming from her head away with toilet paper. Leaving a trail of bloody handprints on the walls, she used to steady herself as she walked up the stairs. Natalie changed from her running shorts and t-shirt into a white teddy. Why she did this, why she thought this was important, fuck if I know. Susan, meanwhile, also called Dennis Davis to the scene while they waited for the ambulance to arrive. Again, Natalie couldn't speak. Johnny said, quote, her head was bleeding pretty bad and I tried to ask her what happened, you know, if she knew who did this to her and she just couldn't talk. She just had a really frightened look in her eyes, end quote. When the ambulance arrived, Johnny rode with his mom to the hospital. She gave Johnny a kiss and she didn't regain consciousness again. She fell into a coma on the way to Brackenridge Hospital and, as I mentioned before, died 18 days later after being removed from life support following skull fractures and multiple brain contusions. Police had already began to investigate Natalie's attack before she passed away, but from the beginning, the evidence was sparse. The medical examiner found that Natalie died from blunt force trauma, likely from a small bat, tire tool, or club. There were no obvious defense wounds on Natalie's body, no signs of sexual assault, and the crime scene revealed no forced entry or missing items from the apartment. The only thing they found was Natalie's bloody handprints around the apartment. The police's working theory was that someone entered the house after being let inside by Natalie, proceeded to hit her with something like a bat multiple times, and then assuming she was dead or would die shortly thereafter, the attacker left. The same Sunday morning that Natalie was attacked, 911 received another call from the apartment complex from a neighbor. Unaware of the assault, Don Celli was walking back to his apartment from a nearby 7-Eleven store and he saw a man looking into his apartment window. When Don approached the man and asked what he was doing, he was tense and noted to Don something to the effect of, you're the second person that has gotten into my shit tonight and claimed that he was just looking at cats on the balcony. Both men walked toward the parking lot until Don turned right to enter his apartment and the man continued walking straight toward the clubhouse. Don said that when he called 911, the dispatcher asked if his call was about the same incident that had just been reported. He responded that he didn't know, and the dispatcher told him that someone had been beaten at the apartment complex and that an officer would come to talk to him. Don said he went outside and learned what happened to Natalie from Susan and Johnny. Don gave police a description of a tall, approximately six foot, chubby, approximately 220 pound man, 28 to 30 years old, with medium length blonde hair, wearing a t-shirt with the lotions, a local band, printed on it. And most importantly, he was holding a bat. A police sketch was even made and distributed around the area. That's a pretty good description, but if you think about it, I'm sure there were a lot of beefy Texas dudes with longer hair wearing band t-shirts in the 80s. That was kind of a quintessential musician, cool guy uniform, you know? My thought was, did the police track down the band and see if the sketch or the description looked like a known fan? But then I thought, how popular was the band? They said they were just a local Austin group, but at the time, I'm sure Austin was inundated with tons of little local bands. To appease my curiosity, I even looked up the band to see if they were still around or if they became anything in the music world. Surprisingly, The Lotions was a reggae band that played from 1977 to about 1982-83, so at the time of Natalie's death, the band was no longer together. They even did a reunion show in Austin in 2011. It's not like they were just another Rolling Stones wannabe band. Their genre was specific. That would lead me to think that their listener base could have been specific, too especially their hometown fans. 
The cover picture on their Facebook tribute page shows the five members in a black and white photo standing in a swimming pool looking at a separate camera. All of them have medium length hair. Were they blonde? I don't know. Again, the picture was black and white. Just proving my point that despite the decent description of the bat man, Don simply described the majority of guys in Austin, Texas at the time. I still would have maybe asked. The band about the guy couldn't hurt, but on the other hand, the man could have simply picked up the shirt at a thrift store or borrowed the shirt from a friend. So I essentially took too deep of a dive on the lotions tangent. Sorry about that. The police sketch of this bat-wielding man, now lost, later became kind of a confusing piece of evidence in the investigation. In addition to a Crime Stoppers reward, a group with the moniker Friends of Natalie offered a $10,000 reward for information. That's a lot of money even today. Natalie's friend, Mark Hallman, alongside his band Cry Wolf and several others in the music community, raised money via a benefit concert for a trust fund in Johnny's name. I already went over the kind of theory police posed as to how Natalie was attacked, but now let's get into who they believed possibly perpetrated the attack. Police initially speculated that Natalie might have been attacked by someone she met while on 6th Street the night before she was beaten. However, their focus shifted shortly thereafter onto John Martin Odom, a restaurant manager and occasional male stripper. Two of, um, you know, like the worst jobs someone could ever have. I think that's just got to be rough. Uh, Marty, as he was called, was a resident of Natalie's apartment complex. And Don Shelley identified Marty via a police lineup as the Batman in the lotions shirt. A few months after Natalie's attack, Marty was convicted of breaking and entering into another woman's home and raping her. His ex-wife claimed he was sexually violent and often carried a bat. When interviewed, Marty told police he used to see Natalie walking to and from the laundromat on a few occasions, but that was really it. Police didn't have enough evidence to bring Marty Odom to trial for Natalie's murder and somewhat satisfied themselves that he was behind bars for the other victim's attack and rape. And soon after, Natalie's case went cold until police received a tip from an unlikely source. It's always a fucking unlikely source, you know? In 2007, more than two decades later, Austin Police Department received a call from Rebecca or Becky Davis claiming that her husband, Dennis Davis, remember, Forensic Files Dennis Davis, murdered Natalie Antonetti. Rebecca claimed that Dennis allegedly confessed to her while he was drunk back in 1991. Here's the fun fact. Although Dennis, like we established, was Natalie's ex-boyfriend, he wasn't, for whatever reason, an obvious suspect. In 2007, Dennis now lived in Nashville working as a well-established sound engineer in the country music scene. Acting on that tip from Rebecca Davis, Tom Walsh, an Austin cold case detective, began investigating. When questioned, Natalie's son Johnny expressed surprise. He remembered Dennis as a nice guy who let him visit his studio in Austin. Mark Hallman, I mentioned earlier, a mutual friend of Dennis and Natalie, described him as a quiet and reserved person, not a ladies' man. Kind of a red flag, maybe. Another friend, James Rose, reportedly saw Dennis and Natalie arguing at the Steamboat nightclub over Natalie talking to another guy, but James wasn't sure if it was on October 11th or October 12th. Not all witnesses 
were as kind or neutral. Some disputed Dennis's recollection of events, while others painted Dennis as violent. Dennis listed his former girlfriend, Amparo Garcia Crow, as an alibi. He claimed they fell asleep on the floor watching television on the night of October 12th. He woke up to a frantic call from Susan about Natalie, stating that Susan told him over the phone, quote, there was blood everywhere and something was wrong with Natalie, end quote. Amparo did not substantiate Dennis's alibi. She couldn't remember that night initially, but the actress and writer consulted 30 years worth of journals she had kept in her attic. There was no mention of Dennis that entire weekend. Surely, she told Tom Wall, she would have noted it if Dennis had left her early in the morning because a friend was attacked. Amparo also noted that Dennis had a shyness to him, similarly to Mark Hallman's comments on Dennis's personality and demeanor. APD found an incriminating story from yet another former girlfriend, Galinda Mudgett. Uh, Mudgett, Forensic Files. Mudgett, come on. Um, and her best friend, Linda Bless. Galinda and Linda. <laughs> I'm sorry. Dennis had pled guilty to assaulting Galinda in 1989 and served a year of probation. Linda said there were two obvious sides to Dennis, nice on one side and violent and jealous on the other. Granted, this is coming from the best friend of Dennis's girlfriend, but still, I think there is a seed of truth to her claims, especially when you compare it against what other people have said about him as well. Galinda even recalled Dennis confessing to killing Natalie. They dated from 1987 to 1989, and in 1988, he cried on their front porch saying that he didn't mean to do it, he didn't mean to hurt her, he didn't mean to kill Natalie. It's not really clear why Galinda withheld the confession for so long. I'm sure it had something to do with the fact that she was in fear of Dennis at the time, especially after he assaulted her. Her statement, however, confused law enforcement even further when she added that Dennis killed Natalie because she was pregnant with his child. Natalie was not pregnant. The only piece of physical evidence tying Dennis to Natalie's death was an old bitter note. Dennis admitted to writing a note to Natalie in a fit of jealousy after seeing her with another man, Doug Robb. It said, quote, Natalie, you can go to hell and take Doug with you. If you don't have the brains and the self-respect to see through his bullshit, then fuck you. Signed, D.D. I, I, I hate it when people do that. Like, just put your fucking name. Like, D.D. I hate it even more if you just go by a certain, like, the first letter of your name. Like, people, oh, just call me H. Like, no. Like, shut up. Ugh. Anyway, so like that letter, note, whatever you want to call it, it isn't like the worst thing that you could write. You know, it's a little rude and creepy for sure, but it doesn't scream, hey, I'm going to come bashing your brains with a bat because you talked to Doug. See you at 5.15 a.m. Love, Dennis. I don't know. I'm not 100% sold on it. It's, it's a tacky note, but it doesn't mean that you're a killer, you know? Dennis claimed that his jealousy was short-lived, between him and Natalie, I guess, because he loved Amparo. It was actually Natalie, he claimed, that wanted his attention by oscillating between yelling at him and being physically affectionate. It was obviously somewhat of a codependent, toxic relationship. 
The evidence against Dennis was really just a story of maybes and heavily circumstantial and contextual. Was Dennis Davis really someone who had the opportunity, character, and motive to murder his ex-girlfriend? Maybe. At the end of the day, though, Dennis didn't have an alibi. A Chevy Malibu that could or could not have been his car was seen outside Natalie's apartment at 4 a.m. the morning of her attack. His wife called in the tip years later. An ex-girlfriend said he confessed to her and more than one person labeled him violent and stated he had a bat and was quiet and seemed to internalize his feelings. And despite the lack of physical evidence, Dennis Davis was charged with the murder of Natalie Antonetti in 2009. During his trial in 2011, the same year that the Lotions reunion show was, by the way, all that mattered was who had the better story. The prosecution built their case on the maybes, painting Dennis as a violent and jealous man who confessed to his wife and an ex in drunken remorse. The defense, however, relied on the lack of physical evidence and inconsistencies. For example, Dennis didn't match the description Don Shelley gave, and Natalie wasn't pregnant, as Galinda alleged. They also had Dennis's wife, Rebecca. Rebecca Davis recanted. Big fucking surprise. She testified that while upset during their divorce proceedings, she acted on advice from her therapist to give an anonymous tip about a drunken conversation from two decades earlier, which in what world would a professional ever advise a patient to do that? But okay, Rebecca, it came to light that Dennis did not confess to her. Rather, she assumed he was confessing to killing Natalie when he told her, quote, I sinned against God and man, end quote. That's taking some extreme liberties with that interpretation, but sure. During questioning, Rebecca shared what she really knew about Natalie and what Dennis had told her about Natalie's death. She stated that Dennis told her Natalie was trusting, didn't lock her doors, and one night someone broke in, hit her, and she died. She said that Dennis believed someone at Natalie's apartment attacked her. Dennis Davis did not take the stand at his trial. Instead, a statement was read saying that he had seen Natalie the night before on October 12th, confirming James Rose's sighting, and she seemed fine. They had dated off and on for nine months and remained friends. The statement addressed two specific issues. One, how did he know the number of times Natalie was hit? The answer to that question was that Susan told him. And the second issue was, why did he confess to Galinda? The answer to that was that Dennis said he felt guilty because he upset Natalie that evening. And perhaps if he hadn't, she would still be alive. I think that that's perfectly understandable. You feel guilty. Any interaction that you had, you know, last moments of interaction that you had with someone that, you know, is murdered is probably quite traumatic, regardless of what you said. So this is also fascinating, okay? I've seen two different versions of what Don Celli contributed to the trial, but essentially some reports state that Don Celli refused to testify at trial and detectives were unable to find an address at which he could be subpoenaed. Plus, police had lost the sketch that was based on Don's description. I also read that Don was kept off the stand in an interesting joint decision by the prosecution and the defense. His statement, including the physical description, as well as whether or not he talked to the suspect, changed over time. He also, at some point, identified two different men as the suspect. One of those was Marty Odom, as I mentioned before. 
But also, the trial was 26 years after Don's sighting of the man. I'm sure some of the details and memories of the night could have changed after all that time. But unfortunately, you know, those are the things that make or break you as a credible witness. So who knows what happened there? Could it really be that Don was an unstable and unreliable witness? Or did nobody want him to testify because the Marty Odom narrative isn't what the prosecution wanted and it didn't fit with the Dennis Davis narrative? Or did he really just refuse to be involved? I don't know. But why why call 911? Why make the description? Why get a sketch done? Why be so involved to then just when it counts at trial, say, fuck off. Interesting. Surprisingly, the defense neglected to present this alternative theory of Marty Odom, Natalie's neighbor, as a suspect. It's believed that this omission led to a guilty verdict. And as a result, Dennis Davis was sentenced to 36 years in prison for the murder of Natalie Antonetti. A few very interesting things happened during and after the guilty verdict. So while Dennis was being convicted of murder with no physical evidence, Michael Morton was exonerated after 25 years in prison for his wife's murder. DNA evidence cleared him and implicated a new suspect, Mark Norwood, in Christine Morton's death. Mark Norwood, a 57-year-old Bastrop dishwasher, would later be convicted in Christine's murder and the murder of Deborah Baker in 2013 and 2016, respectively. The Michael Morton case is a very well-known murder case in Texas, and this was a huge revelation and precedent-setting moment for the power of DNA testing. Just like Natalie, the other two women were bludgeoned in the head as they slept. The assailant entered their homes in the early morning hours through unlocked doors. Little to nothing was stolen, and none of the women were sexually assaulted. The three women were all brunettes in their 30s, and each of the murders occurred on the 13th day of the month. The women also lived in close proximity to Mark Norwood, who was a handyman and carpet carpet installer in the 1980s. Mark lived about 12 miles from Christine Morton, a few blocks just from Deborah Baker, and then about nine miles from Natalie. So Debbie Scott, a woman who contacted police after watching Natalie's 48 Hours uh, special that aired in 2011, survived a similar evening attack in her home on September 14th, 1990. After returning from a movie theater, a man came into her home, bashing in her head with a log from her patio. She survived, likely due to the rotted wood. Debbie moved away and tried to put it out of her mind until she saw the 48-hour episode. The details chilled her. You know, like Natalie, a man entered her home, beat her, and then left without a trace. Debbie believed that her attacker was the same man who killed Natalie, as well as Christine Morton and Deborah Baker, a.k.a. Mark Norwood. The similarities were so compelling that investigators began to take a serious look into the likelihood that Mark could have killed Natalie. In 2013, just two years after he was sentenced, Dennis Davis had his conviction reversed and a new trial was ordered because his defense team did not introduce the alternative suspect theory. And now there were two options, Marty Odom and Mark Norwood. In 2015, Dennis's murder charge was actually dismissed because it violated his rights to a speedy trial. However, the charge was reinstated in 2017 because the delays to a speedy trial were due to factors outside the prosecution's control, like Dennis hiring a new defense team. 
And finally, after all of the tedious judicial back and forth, in February of 2018, the case against Dennis Davis for the murder of Natalie Antonetti was dismissed. But of course, not before destroying his reputation and career. While many hold that Mark Norwood more than likely also attacked Debbie Scott and killed Christine Morton and Deborah Baker, Travis County prosecutor stated that there was no link between Mark Norwood and Natalie Antonetti, and Dennis Davis is considered a free man. Today, the Austin Police Department considers Natalie's case closed and solved. And that is the murder of Natalie Antonetti. Let's move on to questions and theories because I have a few. So was it Dennis Davis? Dennis was charged with assaulting his girlfriend, Galinda Mudgett, and was only given probation. He had a history of jealousy and controlling tendencies. A car that was seen at the complex around 4 a.m. was similar to his own. His alibi was non-existent, and the woman he used as an alibi said, fuck off, I have journals proving I wasn't with you. His wife reported him 22 years after the fact, but later recanted. On the plus side, he doesn't look like the Batman. He was about five foot seven, quite thin, and had dark hair and a mustache. He bore literally no resemblance to the man Don described. In my opinion, I need a little more than a Chevy Malibu and a shitty note as evidence. However, the fact that he doesn't have an alibi and had an argument with Natalie the night before her death is a bad look. But I also think that the state dismissing his case twice is a good look. You know what I mean? So what about Mark Norwood? The MO is pretty fucking spot on. He lived in the general area and maybe could have done some work at the apartment complex as a handyman and knew of Natalie that way. However, investigators who looked back into the case and actually did testing on items in the apartment confirmed there was no link to Mark Norwood. Christine Morton, Deborah Baker, and Debbie Scott were all attacked with pieces of wood. Granted, a baseball bat is essentially a piece of wood, but you get my point. Mark also targeted homes, not apartments. He slipped through sliding glass doors and unlocked side doors. While rape was not involved in any of the murders, there was a sexual nature to at least two of them. It appears that semen found on top of Christine Morton's body and pubic hairs found on Deborah Baker's bed were part of the DNA evidence that assisted in his arrest all those years later. Additionally, there was some element of robbery involved in his crimes. It is believed that he stole a 45 caliber gun from the Morton's home and he stole a VCR from the Baker home. He would have also been at the higher end of the age range presented by Don Celli's Batman description. I'm unsure of what Mark's appearance was back in 1985, though, so he may have looked similar. But in the end, there was no evidence connecting Mark to Natalie's crime scene and murder. End of discussion. So what about Marty Odom? I feel like that is what most of you are asking. That's kind of who I had on the forefront of my mind as probably the guy who did this. So let's go through the night's events and see how it all could have played out. Marty's roommate told law enforcement that Marty had met Natalie before and had even been inside her apartment. He recited the apartment unit as 188, so he knew it was hers. Marty and Natalie had some drinks and had sex, but she didn't want to pursue anything further. Maybe he was too aggressive in the bedroom, like Marty's ex-wife claimed. 
Sure, Marty could have seen Natalie on 6th Street. He could have seen her walking around the complex pool. He could have just been drunk from the night out and ready to confront Natalie about what was going on between the two of them. Reports state that Natalie was attacked while she was asleep on the couch. The reports also implied that the front door was unlocked, a tendency of Natalie's that Rebecca corroborated in her testimony. If she was attacked on her couch and there were no signs of forced entry, then an unlocked door would make the most sense. He enters the apartment and attacks her, hitting her over the head multiple times. Susan recalls hearing thumping and moaning, but no yelling or screaming or major sounds of a huge struggle or attack. To be fair, Susan was upstairs in her bedroom when the attack took place and Johnny was passed out drunk in his own bedroom. Imagine how all of this could have just turned out differently if she hadn't been asleep on the couch and she had been in her own room, you know? I'm sure, I don't know. I don't want to go down that road. (laughs) Regardless, it was obvious the goal was to just get in, bludgeon Natalie, and get out. Natalie is left violently assaulted, but alive. No rape, though. If we believe Marty's version of events and that he and Natalie did have some sort of interaction before, then it's safe to say that Marty possibly knew Natalie had a roommate and a teenage son. But if he is lying about their previous affair, he could have just as easily seen Susan and Johnny coming and going at some point from Unit 188 and knew Natalie didn't live alone. So perhaps he thought raping her would mean he would be in the apartment longer and in turn put him at risk of being caught. The beating was enough, and he left. If he did do it, I wondered how Marty left Natalie after he beat her. Was she on the ground or on the couch appearing to be dead? Because if not, why did he leave? Why would he risk leaving if Natalie isn't dead yet? Additionally, this is big. Don Celli identifies Marty as the Batman from a police lineup. Does that mean the Batman is the same person who attacked Natalie? No. Is it possible and very likely? Yes. <laughs> I wondered if the bat had any blood on it, or his clothing, or hands for that matter. Don seemed to get a pretty good look at the guy holding the bat, so you would assume that if the bat looked bloody or the man holding it had blood on him, Don would have mentioned that as well. But maybe Marty wiped it or washed it off and cleaned himself up before continuing to walk around the complex. Speaking of which, why, if he did do it, did he just continue on his walk around the complex, being weird and creepy and looking into windows, murder weapon in hand, if he knew that police and EMS would probably be arriving any minute? He obviously is not in the best state of mind. That state of mind could have also contributed to why he left Natalie alive instead of finishing her off, or why he even attacked her in the first place. Regardless, Marty is sketchy enough that police make him take a polygraph test, which he evidently fails miserably. Marty's roommate claims the potential murder weapon is now missing, and then just a few months later, he is arrested and put in prison for a similar crime against another woman. I actually looked up John Martin Odom just to see if I could find a picture of him. That's really all my intention was. Instead, I found not only a picture of him, which I will not be putting on Instagram because he was never actually officially involved in this case technically, so I don't want to put his personal information out there. But um, regardless, instead, I found not only a picture of him, but I found the Texas Sex Offender Registry listing a man with that same name 
six feet, 200 pounds, blonde hair, blue eyes, and born in 1959, putting him at about the exact age and description that Don gave back in 1985. It also lists his offense for being put on the sex offender registry, which occurred in January of 1986 involving a 22-year-old woman. I think it's safe to say that this John Martin Odom is a very good match for Natalie Antonetti's Marty Odom. The registry listed his address and a quick Google search of that brings up his name and his wife's name. I found her on Facebook due to her very uniquely spelled first name. She's very pretty and it looks like they have a nice little family together. So circling back to the questions and theories portion, without all of the details and reasons behind the night's events and how they played out, to make all the pieces fit, you have to kind of fudge the narrative. Like with many cases that we have covered, you have to assume Marty was walking around looking for some type of violent interaction and Don saw him. You have to assume that he de-escalated from a bludgeoning ending in murder to just a rape with a woman in 1986. You have to assume that despite his sexual violence, he didn't rape Natalie. And at least based on Facebook photos, he has left that side of him in the past and is thriving in a happy life as a husband and father. But what did Marty's roommate and Don Celli have to gain by reporting what they saw and heard? Nothing, more or less. But if Marty wasn't the Batman and wasn't Natalie's murderer, then who was? To be honest, I'm truly torn between all three of them in their own way. While Dennis Davis may have had the means and opportunity to kill Natalie, I don't think that the motivation behind attacking her was that strong. They were broken up, and maybe while it appeared he had moved on to another relationship, he got drunk and wrote a stupid note and had an even more stupid argument with her the night she died. Maybe he was lurking around her apartment at 4 a.m. when the Chevy Malibu was spotted. Maybe he was upset about the Doug Rob thing and he wanted to talk to her about it, but he left and went home before the attack even occurred. We will never know the true alibi of Dennis Davis. But to me, what looks worse is the fact that Marty Odom was supposedly a sexually violent man who was rejected by Natalie not long before Natalie's death. And then just three months later, he breaks into a woman's apartment and attacks and rapes her. I think at the end of the day, John Martin Odom had the means, motive, and opportunity that really no one else in Natalie's life had. He most likely was and is the man seen by Don Shelley. And in my opinion... I think Marty Odom got away with murder. That is all I have for you this week. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have any questions or theories of your own, please reach out to me on social media or email. I will be back with more Texas true crime. And if anyone is listening, happy Halloween.